0: David, the Trump campaign announced yesterday in a statement that lawyer Sidney Powell was no longer part of the president's campaign legal team, (laughs) if she ever was. What I want to know is, is this the best way to find out you're no longer working for somebody?
1: (laughs) I mean, it's got to be a little bit awkward right after the, the attorney that is working for the legal team introduced you and stepped aside so that you could approach the microphone to find out that that was not uh, it did not imply everything that you thought it did that is a great way I I don't know I mean they said that she's practicing law on her own correct
2: if this (laughs) happened to you
1: or me if if Bill Simmons got on Twitter and said I would just like everyone to be clear that Brian Curtis is not uh, a host (laughs) of the press box and not an employee of the ringer he is out there committing acts of journalism on his own at least like well, you would have uh, presumably pay stubs to contradict it but if you didn't at least there's like a definition of this right you are blogging right you are <laughs> your, your, your journalism are just they're just blogs they're not really ours your your podcasts are just you recording they're not really ours there's not really the idea of like practicing law on one's own doesn't really exist right I mean you have to have a client
0: <laughs> yeah I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the idea of profiling Joe Buck on my own
1: like what, what, <laughs> <laughs> I imagine how disappointed he would be just like well he's just like thanks for thanks for all the uh you know the, for for caring brian when is this piece going to come out and you just don't respond
0: yeah know? i don't even have a Substack. it's just uh <laughs> just it's just kind of for me coming up on today's show have any of you guys seen donald trump lately david and brian give production notes on meet the press plus ben mankowitz of turner classic movies all that and more on the press box a part of the ringer podcast network Hello, media consumers, Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. David, we're doing our best not to talk about Donald Trump, but we're at this very (laughs) weird place right now where on the one hand, Donald Trump is trying to steal the election. And on the other, Trump is physically absent from our lives for the first time. I can't remember him being since 2015, maybe before that.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, uh, it's hard to remember a time when he was less present. Um and it, but it, you know, everything that's going on, the ceiling of the election, as you said, and I'm even going to say as you put it because that is a statement of fact, is in some ways a lot more has a lot more volume than what we're used to with Trump, right? I mean, it's his his silence is sort of deafening. Uh and it, just in the fact that we Everything else that's going on is just—that's all we need to know, sort of.
0: Yeah, it's it's everything Trump has done times—I don't know, ten thousand—and yet the man himself is not vocally participating in it. I want to—I want to share some numbers I alluded from Josh Dossie's article in the Washington Post. According to his website called FactBase, Donald Trump has spoken about eight thousand words in the 18-day period since election day. In 2020, he spoke about that many words every day, Mm -hmm. according to the same site. So 8,000 words publicly since election day, 8,000 every day at other times in 2020. Quoting Dossie again, Donald Trump averaged 48 minutes on camera every day in 2020. He has spent about 50 minutes on camera total since November 3rd definitively it is the quietest period of his presidency fact-based owner bill frishing said here's what's weird about that if you were trying to steal an election david wouldn't it be just as obvious a strategy to be out there yeah to be doing maybe rallies in michigan and pennsylvania to put pressure on state legislators
1: don't give him any ideas all right i mean yeah, the last is- thing we a, a rally at the trump rally at this point would be it could be a breaking point for democracy the, the the um but you're right it's strange that he's not out there more or it's interesting that he's not out there more i think that it's you know you can usually use some form of I mean as we as we have many times over the past 4 years some sort of you know psychoanalytical occam's razor with Donald Trump and it to me it honestly just feels like if he had anything to say he would be saying it and i'm sure there's there, there's there is a, an element of this where maybe there's some dejection you know maybe he's just this is how one acts when one loses but doesn't have the tools to deal with loss or doesn't have, you know to to grapple with reality in that way but i do think that like if the people around him were really spinning Hopeful conspiracy theories, hopeful, uh, just you know, fictional accounts of the path forward. I feel like he'd be out there saying them. I feel like there there were, you know, I mean, even even places like you know, Newsmax are still staunchly in his quarter corner, but are you know, encouraging him to go along with the transition just in case. You know, what I mean, there, like there there's, I feel like even the even the the far the extremes are kind of pulling back on the stuff that would normally be fueling his tweets, his press conferences, everything else. I just don't think he has a script right now.
0: Yeah, that came up in Dossie's article, too. I'll read you one more passage. Unlike 2016, when Trump doubted he would win, he is genuinely surprised by the defeat, advisors say. Over the past few weeks of the campaign, advisors on Air Force One repeatedly told the president he was going to win. Because of the large crowds at his rallies and showed him favorable polling, Trump mused about how he would mock the pundits and his critics after the election when he won again, (laughs) advisors say. So Trump, David, had all the lines ready to go (laughs) about how the media once again underestimated him. I don't know. I don't think he knows what he wants to say yet, said one official. It's all over the place based on the day. So that basically is what you just guessed, which is that, Donald Trump just doesn't have a great answer for this.
1: No, I don't. I mean, I think I don't think that he does. And I do. And it is an interesting way to frame it. um, What you just read, because it's sort of like the way you talk yourself into, like your team in the Super Bowl or like the the college playoffs, like some like like a supremely important game where all you do is just sort of you and your buddy just like have like a like mantras going back and forth. There's no way. There's no way their offense can 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 get through our defensive line. You just say these these truisms, even if they're not true to yourself over and over again. And then when your team gets squashed, there are people who can like who are just lose their minds because nothing that they, you know, insisted for the past two weeks turned out to be true. Or you're someone that watched the game and you're like, oh, there's a lot of things that happened to contribute to this win. And I understand them, even though I'm disappointed. Uh, Trump, you know, clearly doesn't seem capable of actually just like witnessing the thing that just transpired and and accepting it as true.
0: And what's so funny about that is how many terrible hands has he tried to play in Mm -hmm. American life? We had to go back like, what, a month to think Mm -hmm. of like him spinning the coronavirus and his administration's handling of it positively. Mm -hmm. So you would think you wouldn't think losing an election especially with all these elaborate conspiracy theories we'll talk about here in a second, would really stop him. I mean, I and again, I don't want to be the Donald Trump brainstorm session, so forget what I just said about the rallies. But I kind of expected him to do more of the like go into the White House briefing room and just yell at reporters. Yeah. And, you know, insist that Joe Biden did this and the Dominion voting machines did this and Hugo Chavez did this. I kind of expected that, but he has not seemed to have the uh, stomach for that either.
1: No, I mean, when he came out for that f- first coronavirus briefing post-election, that seemed like the, a potential path forward, right? That he would just come out and sort of be presidential or however he saw, however he wanted to define that and be present, even if he's not actively debating the election results in public. But he hasn't really done that. And you can see the sort of deflation in his voice and in his posture when he came out for that briefing. I mean, part of me, like I said, I just don't think he has the script. I, I Part of me wonders if, the people who would normally be, you know, providing that script are just sort of uh, taking their vacation days before the <laughs> clock runs out on the, the administration, right? I mean, it's like, it's, it, it, it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of whatever the motivating factors were two weeks ago, it sort of seems like, or three weeks ago, it seems like we're sort of, th- those don't exist anymore.
0: So you're saying Stephen Miller is like on South Padre Island right now and, Trump's trying to get a hold of him, but he left his phone in the hotel.
1: I I I think people are taking work from home in the coronavirus virus era seriously for the first mysteriously for the first time in the calendar year. I mean, I just I think people in the White House. Yeah, in the White (laughs) House. Yeah, yeah. I just think they're making excuses to to kind of not be around, but but you know, I'm I'm just making things up.
0: In this vacuum, two things have happened. Number one, Joe Biden is being president Mm -hmm. right now. We see a whole host of nominees for various cabinet posts, for various administration posts. His advisors are all over the Sunday shows. So this breach to me, and this is, again, a a weird sort of irony of it, if that's the word of it, is that by being quiet, Donald Trump is essentially letting Biden publicly be
1: the president. It's done a lot more for the cabinet um, in a lot of ways than it has for the biden presidency so i mean i guess it's done a lot for the biden presidency too but in but if if biden was if the transition were happening uh in a conventional way i don't think that the you know i don't think that ron claine would have gotten the red carpet rolled out for him like he did last week you know i don't think that i don't i think that the that the nominee that the nominees are sort of getting um more of a positive spotlight shown on them right it's not just about qualifications it's not just about what you know, the Republicans in the Senate have to say about them. Um, it's this is sort of well, I don't know which government is is in exile, depending on the way they're acting, but it does seem like they're 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 getting they're really getting a moment in the spotlight. And Biden, for his part, has sort of done a hard pivot from his his campaign shtick, which was a sort of, you know, standing up to the bully defiance to just I guess I mean it's almost like his, his official the official, campaign, uh, the official campaign, you know, uh, mood at this point is just sheesh, you know, like everything he goes out there and every time he's appearing in public, it's just sort of like everything he says comes at the end of a long sigh. You know, it's just like it, it's it's sort of he's <laughs> yes, he has a quiet power to his voice, but quiet is the big thing. It's just like, I don't know what we're going to do, but, you know, we'll get it done. You know? Can you believe
0: this guy? Did you yeah. see what he said? Yeah. He had one of those last week where he's standing in front of his office of the president elect thing and say, oh, can can you believe this guy? It's almost like a very muted sort of reaction on purpose, which brings us back to the idea of stealing the election, because, of Mm -hmm. course, as quiet as Donald Trump is being, (laughs) that is not a small news story. And that is an absolutely amazingly awful, hideous thing to try to do to whatever extent he's trying to do it. And the other person who has really filled this void is the lawyer Sydney Powell. Yeah. You might have seen her David when she appeared at a press conference at RNC headquarters with Rudy Giuliani last week. And was described as part of the Trump legal team's quote elite strike force. <laughs> she is no longer an actual member of the strike force having apparently left the team or never been on the team or we don't know. But listen to this, here's how she entered the spotlight last week. What we are really dealing with here and uncovering more by the day is the massive influence of communist money through Venezuela, Cuba, and likely China in the interference with our elections here in the United States. The Dominion voting systems, the Smartmatic technology software, And the software that goes in other computerized voting systems here as well, not just Dominion, were created in in Venezuela at the direction of Hugo Chavez to make sure he never lost an election after one constitutional referendum came out the way he did not want it to come out.
1: Okay. (laughs) Well, when you explain it like that.
0: Doesn't that feel like footage that would be clipped and then sort of narrated by Martin Sheen for the beginning of the Oliver Stone movie, which is <laughs> that kind of tour of all the boogeyman countries around the globe. You Heavy use of the word communist. Yeah. Communist.
1: Yeah. I mean, Sidney Powell, I think, um, got a, a, was getting a pass for a very brief window because uh, I, I think that people generally weren't familiar with her and mistakenly believed she was, you know, so one of these white glove attorneys that that, you know, various news outlets have been threatening that the Trump the Trump campaign would would roll out um, everything she did once she got on the you know national stage has been just bonkers. I mean, just I don't even know what's the equivalent of this. I mean, could you imagine Rudy Giuliani has enough promise? I mean, promise enough problems. Imagine. But just imagine being Rudy Giuliani and being like, and now I'm going to turn this over to Sidney Powell, and she just gets up there and says that. I mean, it, you just have to be. I mean, you just be aghast, e- even as even as you're spinning a web of just ridiculous and and almost treasonous lies. I mean, that's just bonkers stuff.
0: Hair dye is running down the sides of your face, and you're yeah. the serious person in the yes. room.
1: <laughs> you're the person we look to.
0: It's also created this weird sort of media thing where Tucker Carlson asked. Sydney Powell for evidence to support these various conspiracies Mm -hmm. Said I would give my whole week of the show for you to come on. She couldn't provide any. Then Powell started retweeting accounts, attacking Carlson, including one that said Carlson had thrown, quote, one of his Fox globalist directed temper tantrums and quote is owned by the syndicate, the syndicate capitalized, not really (laughs) sure where that is going. And then that... In the next sort of domino tumble, allowed Newsmax, this sort of ascendant right-wing network that nobody can find on cable without really, really, really trying to attack Fox from the right, that Fox is insufficiently loyal to Donald Trump because of that dastardly Tucker Carlson.
1: Well, I think it's more than just because of Tucker Carlson, but I think the fact that even Tucker Carlson has been subsumed into the... Trump hatred at Fox News. Uh, that's even that's all the proof we need that it's you know they're, they've left the they've left the movement.
0: The think piece angle here, if we were writing this for the New York Times opinion section, is like, oh, this is what post-Trump media looks like. Donald Trump has just been dominating every second of television, every inch of newsprint for four years. He's sort of backed off again. While trying to steal the election, he has just personally backed off for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. So, this is what the media is going to look like post Trump. I don't even want to do that think piece because I don't think this is actually going to last very long. Yeah. And I'm just sort of waiting. I mean, he, I'm, I'm sort of fearful when we do this segment that Donald Trump was just going to like go in front of the media today and, and hijack it because there's no way he can resist being the story for very much longer
1: yeah i mean the the carlson moment i don't think i don't know how much we can really read into that right now the reaction at the time obviously you you described the right-wing reaction there was a lot of reaction elsewhere that that carlson had seen the light or that he even even this was proof that even even he knew that that the election was over you know and this is him kind of pivoting to whatever the next version of tucker is going to be i mean i think it could be as simple as he was, was really just like a moment of peak right i mean that he just that he was actually sort of offended that this person wasn't responding to him. Um, and he, cause this is the story he wanted to tell uh, who knows what the real reason is, but I don't think it has to be that much that, that complicated, um, in either direction, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, all, all he did was state what one. I mean, one presumes to be the truth, which is that she, he was asking for, you know, one bit of one, one breadcrumb of truth. And she told him to stop texting her. Uh, and then in response, people were like, well, I mean, like literally looping him in with like the Pizzagate conspiracy theory and saying oh that he was, a God. you know, the frequent goer of comet ping pong. I mean, it just, just, again, this is, I think in a lot of ways, this is the future of media, which is the future of the news in the post-Trump era, if narrowly defined in this way. Fox doesn't have Fox is not going to be anti-Trump or whatever in in any kind of demonstrative way because Trump's not going to matter to them to the same degree. I mean, obviously they're interested in the presidency or the immediate or the people who are immediately there in competition to it, right? The Republican, the 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 power players on the Republican side, they're they're into a very traditional source of, I mean, a a very traditional source of power is what would drive their their bias. And that's going to really open up the playing field for people to be reporting on news and and points of view and conspiracy theories that nobody in the mainstream is touching right now. Fox, in some ways, sort of served to mainstream the lunacy of the Trump administration for the past four years. You know, they sort of set the terms of of debate that we by which we would discuss Trump on the right, and now they're not going to be in that business presumably at all anymore. So it will be a very split up, a very just kind of. Shattered media landscape:
0: What will we do without Jesse Waters as our gatekeeper anymore? <laughs> if only we could go to the back to the high standards of Waters world. <laughs> that boy, that was a golden age.
1: It's still on. Waters World is still on. And he's on the five all the time. I've seen a lot of Jesse Waters lately.:
0: There's been a lot of Jesse Waters. He's, he, he, he has not given up the fight quite yet. All right, David, let's do the overworld Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious. That all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the Press Box pod, where they are always gratefully received. Anyone who watched that bizarre Rudy Giuliani election-stealing press conference last Thursday noticed a funny sight, David. Yes, it was that black hair dye trickling down Rudy's cheeks. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, democracy dies in darkness. Thanks to T-Sizzle. Derek Burke and Josh for that one. David, former South Carolina governor, Nikki Haley talked some smack about Florida state's football team. This weekend, Florida state had backed out of a game with Clemson over COVID concerns, Florida state Haley tweeted, whether you lose today or a few days from now won't matter. Get it over with already. Stop stalling. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, Uh, I think you misspelled Donald Trump. (laughs) Thanks to Uh, Kevin Anderson. Can that possibly have been an accident that her tweet about Florida state was exactly what liberals are saying about Donald Trump? (laughs) Seems unlikely. And finally, David, as a dad, I want to point you to this story in the New York Post. I'm quoting here. Dr. Anthony Fauci says Santa Claus is immune to COVID-19. Santa Claus is immune to COVID-19. This is real. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, the logical takeaway here is that we need to capture, kill, and autopsy Santa Claus. (laughs) Thanks to Charles Pryor III. If you figure a Santa autopsy is the logical endpoint of 2020, congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Anytime
3: Fitness.
0: And we've got a new feature starting today. We're going to pick a TV news show, one that David and I hear about, maybe even use clips from, but <laughs> don't always actually watch. <laughs> we're going to watch it, and we're going to offer some production notes. You know, football season, David. whenever a team has a bad game, and you say, oh, man, they're really going to hear it from the assistant coaches on Monday during film <laughs> study.
1: <laughs> I have heard that, yeah.
0: We're the assistant coaches. Nice. You're going to hear it from us. So we thought we'd start with Meet the Press, the Sunday NBC News show hosted by Chuck Todd. Here's how Meet the Press started yesterday. Welcome to Sunday. It's Meet the Press.
2: From NBC News in Washington, the longest-running show in television history, this is Meet the Press with Chuck Todd.
0: How do we feel about the self-conscious grandeur of meet the press
1: well i mean (laughs) i feel like i feel like i'm just just totally just totally immune to it because wwe does this all the time uh you know tooting their own horn about being the longest running cable television weekly tell episodic i don't even know what they say um well i mean with the at the risk of jumping too far ahead in the conversation it seems literally. I mean, it seems corny, right? It seems a little bit silly to say. I mean, and and the music underscores it. I mean, it underlines that at every commercial break when the music comes in, you're like this. All this does is remind me of a bygone era. But and we'll keep coming back to this. The like the number one thing that Meet the Press has going for it is its legacy, right? And and as hammy as that comes across a lot of the time, and as as much as they sort of let down that legacy i think at times and every episode i don't think it's a i don't think it's i don't think it's a bad idea in a general sense to remind viewers of that legacy on a regular basis i agree and i i
0: am into hammy tv grandeur it's tv it's not a podcast it mm-hmm. should feel it should feel kind of big and and a little bit grand. If that theme song feels grand, David, let me tell you where it comes from. Quoting from Slate here, in the mid-80s, NBC News commissioned a grand symphonic work called The Mission from Hollywood composer John Williams. Yes, that is John Williams of Star Wars and Indiana Jones. That particular song that you heard a bit of there is from the fourth movement of The Mission, and (laughs) it is called The Pulse of Events. (laughs) i'm not making this up folks the pulse of events but yes i am into that i i want i want tv news to sound a little overwrought
1: do you think that when john williams would give those like live orchestral performances in like you know some la park over the past the decade before he died and played like the star wars music did he ever play this did he ever did he ever have the orchestra perform this this uh this whatever this is this composition
0: All right, one correction. John Williams still very much with us. I thought he Um, died. No, Did he die? No, he did not.
1: He's 88. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, that's that's embarrassing.
0: Sorry, that's going to make his uh, appearance on Press Box next month kind of awkward. No, just kidding. John Williams, when he was at the Hollywood Bowl, was he asked to play the Pulse of Events kind (laughs) of like John Tesh is asked to play the NBA on NBC theme that's exactly. the question yeah. here
1: like does John Williams come out and there's some <laughs> real like news heads in the second row who are, who are just like demanding it
0: can we bump E.T. and Superman here <laughs> can we play the pulse of events I would like I would actually like to see that live but that probably says something about me um, did you David? before we hop into the actual episode did you have a theory about Chuck Todd's beard versus Chuck Todd's goatee
1: um well i prefer the beard i prefer i mean but you wrote a piece about chuck todd at some point in the long lost past i wrote a piece about goatees. the goatee oh that's right and what was the explanation why did he wear the he goatee? It was his
0: dad his dad had a goatee and he was wearing it to honor his dad
1: right i mean chuck todd uh, kind of has the look with or without the beard of someone who hasn't quite figured out their look, right? And and I think that that's, that, that's part of his appeal. I mean, at least at the beginning, that's part of the charm. But it is, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I prefer, I, I I guess I prefer bearded Chuck Todd. Um, it's weird, the kind of the look feeds into a lot of the other, uh, indirectly, it kind of feeds into a lot of the other complaints about him I and they all kind of become intertwined. So I, I kind of wish we just didn't have a, The the, the goatee or beard weren't there for the discussion, but um, yeah, he looks great with the beard.
0: You think he's going to have a time to go back to the old me moment where he shaves off the beard and goes back to the goatee?
1: (laughs) You're speaking to someone who just shaved his beard. uh, um, I'm sure he'll go back someday, yeah. Maybe he'll try something else. Maybe he'll just try the soul patch.
0: If you haven't watched Meet the Press in a while, the structure is this. Todd does kind of a talking points catch up on the latest news at the top. Mm Mm-hmm. Then he does a handful of interviews with newsmakers, and then he has a panel. Yesterday, I thought his opening remarks were really good and probably tougher than I would have expected. He had this chyron that said, the threat to democracy in all caps, talked about Trump undermining confidence in democracy, kneecapping the incoming administration, and on and on. Then he began the interviews. And the first one, as it turned out, was with Kevin Kramer, Republican senator from North Dakota. Now, David, if Kevin Kramer had come up to your doorstep in New Jersey yesterday morning before Meet the Press, would you have recognized him at all? No,
1: no, no, of course not.
0: So this is somebody we don't know, but we probably could have guessed that Kevin Kramer, Republican from North Dakota, would be doing this thing that, quote unquote, respectable Republicans have been doing over the last couple of weeks, which is say, you know what? Donald Trump is just, you know, he's just pursuing his legal means right now, right? This is not, this is not a threat to democracy. He just, he's just, he's just, we just got to wait and let this work its way through the courts. Mm-hmm. In fact, that is exactly what Kevin Kramer did. Listen to how Chuck Todd comes back to him. I think, right. I think what we're experiencing now, um, everyone, I just, just
4: relax and, and uh, let it play out in the legal way. We'll be just fine.
0: You've implied that there's no damage being done just now in those comments. So you believe well, what there was a that lot the, of the spectacle? The I mean, yeah. Well, I want to ask you the spectacle of Rudy Giuliani on Thursday, um, using the headquarters of the Republican Party. I mean, at what point, what are the lawyers accused a dead dictator of somehow uh, being a part of this? I mean, are you really saying that the president is is you're out there saying the president's not encouraging? somehow, uh, uh, any any way of sort of being disorderly about this. How is that not encouraging disruption and, and disorderly? You're, he's accusing the entire system of being corrupt.
1: Uh,
0: <sighs> what a question.
1: One, one is tempted to sympathize with Chuck Todd trying to be a straight news person in the Donald Trump era, but... Um, but and and listen, we're we're what one week removed. When, when when did this? When when did we? One week or two weeks removed from Chuck Todd? I think tweeting or going public saying that they had invited like all of the congressional Republicans on the show and never and none of them said yeah and no one said yes. Um, you know, it's not one of the kind of abiding problems to Meet the Press is that no one feels the obligation to appear on it that maybe they once did right that there's not this isn't just like the only stage for any kind of public discourse mm-hmm. uh to the degree that it once was so i don't know if they if he feels like he has to hear people out uh in in order to have them come on the show at all um but this is just doing a real disservice i think to di- to the discourse in general to sort of like like say, I'm just opening it up for discussion. You know I mean? This it, this is not n- a novel thing to say. Um, there, I saw a tweet from Matt Negrin who works for the daily show previously worked for, uh, well, ABC news tonight, I believe he tweeted, Chuck Todd is interviewing a flat earther on meet the press and asking him, sir, why do you think the earth is flat? I mean, it's, it, there's, you know, there's a limit. You're not going to have any Republicans that want to show up on meet the press this week, uh, and grapple with reality. Right. So does that mean you have none of them on? I don't I don't know what the right answer is to that, but there it's this sort of time where we use phrases like the horse racing, you know, the kind of horse raciness or in the insideriness, the you know, Washington-centricness. This is where that stuff whatever it is intended to mean really shines through. This is just it becomes a conversation about a conversation. And I don't think, especially at a time like this, it's really particularly helpful.
0: There's something about that give and take that feels so obligatory, doesn't it? I ask the Senator a question. Yeah. Senator says whatever the Senator is going to say. And then I ask the Senator another question.
1: Mm. And it seems like that the rebuttal or like the follow-up question is prescripted so much of the time, right? I mean, I think mm-hmm. that goes to the formality that you're saying. It's not, it doesn't, even if it's in react reaction to what was just said, it feels like it's a canned reaction.
0: I would absolutely vote for having Kramer on. He didn't make a little bit of news yesterday or or perhaps said something again, which was that he was all for the transition uh, stuff to start with Joe Biden, which, you know, getting as many Republicans as you can, I think on that on that train is a good thing. I just think Chuck Todd, if you know where that this interview is going to go, there's going to be a lot of stuff. And we in the clip before the clip we played, he was saying, you know, Kramer was going, oh, well, what about impeachment? What about, you know, them spying on Trump? If you know where that's going to go, you have to be ready mm-hmm. and you have to be ready to pin this guy down. Mm-hmm. Chuck Todd likes to do the old Tim Russert trick. We're like, I'm going to put a quote up on the screen right now and I want you to respond <laughs> to this quote. Here's a quote. How about the quote where Donald Trump said he was that Democrats were trying to steal the election? Mm-hmm. Do you, Senator, think that Democrats stole the election? Do you think they rigged an election? These are Donald Trump's exact words. So don't don't get off on R- crazy Rudy and all this kind of stuff. You've got this guy there, right? You uh-huh. need to hold him to the leader of his party's words. And if mm-hmm. he wants to put some daylight in there. Great. That's news.
1: I couldn't agree more. I also think that there's an element to this. I mean, just in terms of general, you know, we've got notes. Uh, there the, the general structure of the show. You went over it. But to get more specific, it's the the intro is i, I mean, like I timed this stuff out. His intro was six and a half minutes. The first two interviews that he did in the in the kind of A block took up 13 minutes. They went to commercial. They did some COVID interviews. It were 10 minutes. And then we get to the round table. I feel like in an age where we have nonstop daily news on one end of the spectrum and sort of, well, I don't know, this is, this is a really arbitrary spectrum, but we have the nonstop daily news and we have, on the other hand, we have like podcasts and and, you know, whatever else. I feel like you i feel like there's having four interviews in your first two blocks is not particularly helpful i would rather have one interview with someone i didn't particularly know about that actually got past the first 10 minutes of pleasantries than just to kind of touch on everything else the one big thing that i mean and and you know we can talk about how how meet the press functions meet the press functions in a world of you know, nonstop cable news coverage, including, by the way, a daily meet the press show on MSNBC. Mm -hmm. They don't have any obligation on the Sunday show to cover everything. I'm happy that they're covering COVID at a time where it's like really significant. But if they didn't have a COVID segment, the world would not be lost for how to deal with COVID over the next week. Right. I, I almost feel like. They should have single subject shows or more narrowly directed shows so that we actually get. We actually get beyond the first, like the, like I said, get beyond the pleasantries on any one subject.
0: How about asking Kevin Kramer about COVID? Yeah, isn't North Dakota enmeshed in this enormous COVID crisis right now? Mm-hmm. Couldn't you kind of collapse all that thing? I completely agree. I no, no segment on this show felt long enough. Mm-hmm. They all felt too short. The interviews felt a little too short, like they ended right before something was going to happen. The panel segments felt a little too short. Um, There's also maybe a design flaw here. Dave Weigel tweeted about this this week, and he said the classic meet the press format with a panel of reporters grilling one politician for 30 minutes was perfect and should be brought back. Mm -hmm. So he had Politico playbooks, Anna Palmer and NBC's Hallie Jackson on the panel. What if, David, we took them, put them next to Chuck Todd and all three of them interviewed Kevin Kramer for a longer period
1: of time? Well, I think you wouldn't have anybody coming on the show or in in, in or at least in any kind of moment where you'd actually be interested to hear from them. I mean, that's that's the problem. Right. Again, there's no they, they need to f- somehow set the terms for debate or set the terms for engagement. So in such a way that people do feel it's necessary to come on the show. And I know that it's really easy to say that. Right. But even if it's as simple as. Like I said, if it's a single subject, you can't predict this every time. But announce what the show is going to be about at the end of every show. Announce what next week's going to be about. Invite people on the show on the show, like during, mm-hmm. like you know, call. I mean, call people out. Like you have to find a way to get people there. And but but if they are going to be there, yeah. I mean, sub, I mean, listen, the discussion about Chuck Todd, the discussion about needing a new host, is a little bit of a misdirection, right? I mean, there, people can have problems with Chuck Todd, but what you're suggesting is something I think that's has a lot more value than sort of arguing about the personality sitting at the desk. Uh, I mean, Hallie Jackson. I mean, Hallie Jackson would probably be better at the job. I mean, Savannah Guthrie would probably be better at the job than Chuck Todd. That's sort of beside the point. Um, the problem is that all of those people, after sitting at those desks, si- sitting at that desk for more than, you know, two months, are going to sort of absorb all of the inside baseball that that makes Chuck Todd's so much of what Chuck Todd does feel so smarmy, right? And and what and a panel of you know, around the horn, but politics, a panel of like, of new uh, of news people from around the country would theoretically be a little bit more impervious to that sort of insideriness.
0: Yeah, maybe. Then we got to the panel segments after those four interviews you mentioned, David. Mm-hmm. There were four panelists, the aforementioned Hallie Jackson and Anna Palmer, plus Eddie Glaude Jr. of Princeton and commentary editor John Podoritz. Again, a little too big for me, Given how much time everybody got, I could have probably done with two panelists. Mm-hmm. plus Chuck Todd is kind of a panelist himself. Yeah, they also did this weird Sunday show thing where the panelists only respond to Chuck Todd. Yeah, They don't talk to each other. Like mm-hmm. I don't know if we I don't know if we need to like defend cable news, but when Van Jones and Rick Santorum start arguing with each other, it can be really terrible, but you can also get a moment out of that because they push each other in different directions. It felt Mm -hmm. almost a little airless when they're kind of just talking to Chuck Todd and answering questions like you were never really going to get any any just spark of life, any any sort of moment.
1: God, I could not agree more. I mean, part of this is the moment that we're in right now in history that because of coronavirus, everybody was remote. And that and, and when you look at the TV screen. There is literally no difference between this and something, whatever's happening on MSNBC right now, right? I mean, there's not, the, being, being in person allows for more uh, discussion uh, between the various guests. But I agree that it should be, I mean, there should be fewer people in that discussion. I don't think we necessarily need multiple, I mean, like, I love Hallie Jackson. I don't, I mean, I, and, and I, I think that there's sort of a perfect world where she's more of a Andy Richter you know, who's just there to sort of like be a backstop for anything Chuck Todd doesn't know or things he wants to fact check, as opposed to being an individual guest, right? And whenever he would go to her, it felt like, I mean, she was sort of like giving a reality check, but he had to like set it up, tear up every time, which just seemed really unnecessary. She should just be interjecting with things that she knows about the subject that that are not are not coming across in the rest of the conversation. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I find it, I don't want to be like going too hard on the segment because like I said, it's different when they're in person. I don't know if it's better when I'm in person. I feel like my abiding, my, when, when I think of Meet the Press, and maybe this is because it's the time, the, the exact moment that I used to wake up when I was in my twenties. My abiding memory of Meet the Press is the second, pe- the second half of the panel when we come back from commercial, just that last segment of the show, and mm-hmm. it's a little like, they 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 loosen their ties just a little bit, <laughs> and it's both sort of revealing and like and and chummy, but also just a little bit like nauseating, you know. Or they're just sort of like, all right, you know, like like, well, ha, ha ha ha, how are we gonna solve this mess? Um, I, I don't know what the fix is for that. I mean, cause that's the in-person stuff that I'm saying we're not having right now, but I just don't, I, I think that there's a lot of kind of formality to the show in general. There's a lot of, we're doing it this way because this is the way it's been done. And yes, there is a denial of how the world around them has changed. And I think that part of that, like I said, is you have to react to the fact that most of what you do is being accomplished elsewhere, both in terms of, just the reality of other news shows existing and going through the motions on a lot of this stuff, but also people having other outlets there that they're that they favor to go to to get the news out, you know, when, when they when they want to get something out in the public sphere. um and then the biggest thing, and and maybe this is maybe this is low hanging fruit, but i the thing I kept thinking when I was trying to watch this with a critical eye is that it's really inexcusable that the fake news shows. Like the Daily Show are better at every aspect of this. It's Even like so Bill weird. Maher's show, which like I kind of wash through like my fingers at times, is better at the panel stuff than this show. Like the 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 funny shows are better than the real shows. And if that's because you need a better writers room or a writers room at all, if that's because you're not planning out the show in a way that a stage show is allowed to do, you, there are ways that you can accomplish being competitive with those shows. At least like. You can't watch the show with a critical eye and the, the the opening of the show like you said was good that opening monologue but you can't watch it critically and not say John Oliver would have done a better job of that no way right and no and, way. And, and and it's the same thing it's the same premise it, it's John Oliver's a better performer than Chuck Todd I'm not like putting all that on Chuck Todd but like you can accomplish a lot you can accomplish so much more if you were willing to like if you're willing to decide what reality is, right? If you're, you don't have to take a side, you have to take the side of truth, right? And you can accomplish so much more in, week in and week out if you sort of start from that point of view. I don't know, I, 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 well, go ahead.
0: It's funny just because TV in so many cases has been shaken by other technologies, by podcasts, by Twitter, by all these other ways we get information. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is is totally correct. The TV Sunday news shows were shaken by other TV shows, mm-hmm. by The Daily Show, by, by Oliver, by Bill Maher, those things, because they were just sharper and they felt a little more dangerous. They didn't feel like they were wearing tuxedos on the air and they were, all, you know, their behavior was inhibited, right? They're just, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. And I think there's got to be a way, you know, you're not going to be John Oliver, but there's got to be a way that you can say, here's why Meet the Press is still incredibly important. And this mm-hmm. is going to – it's just going to – something is going to happen here that's really important and that you need to pay attention to. A couple of final notes for you, David. Did you see the segment where Todd went in front of the big board? Yeah. Uh, it was kind of a Steve Kornacki-like big board, and he was talking mm-hmm. about the importance of various counties in the election. Yeah. Didn't that seem like what Chuck Todd would have been had his <laughs> career not gone the other way and he yeah. became host of Meet the Press?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad you made that point about it because I was worried – I mean I, – it was worried you're going to be overly complimentary about that segment the the, the segment was good and yes that is sort of the, the in a lot of ways the kind of version of Chuck Todd that I think I would rather have but um you you get you watch it and and one gets the impression that they that that's a segment that you know the producers are sort of high-fiving about feeling like they're really kind of evolving the show right and that was just such a small piece of what is otherwise just a fossil um, but yeah, I I, I I agree about that. That that is that is exactly the right reaction. To that.
0: The other funny thing was Chuck Todd was sitting in front of a picture of the White House during <laughs> his on camera moments, and Halle Jackson was sitting in front of a picture of the Jefferson Memorial. <laughs> so I guess if you work for AB for NBC News, you just have to pick a different washington landmark like if we It'd had andrea if you,
1: it would be awkward if you were both at the same place but neither of you were actually at that place
0: no but it's like yeah exactly like if andrea mitchell was on do you think the air and space museum would have been behind her <laughs> i mean it's just like that would, That was just funny to me and fine and very finally here did you hear chuck todd do a not joke during no. <laughs> during one of his outros <laughs> so he put a picture i totally missed this Yes, he put a picture of Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell on the screen because they are going to lead their respective parties in the Senate and House after the elections now are over. And Chuck Todd said this. When we come back, the changing faces of congressional leadership. Sorry, not true. Same old, same old after the break. (laughs) (laughs) The first image I got was this. I, I, I must say this. This is the thing that came to me.
1: It's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Not. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's that's uncomfortable. I think that, again, avoiding I, I said I was going to avoid the pylon. I think there's one thing we have to the have pylon. I think just kind of the last note that I have here on my thing. This is actually from a tweet that uh, Soledad O'Brien tweeted um, a week ago or something. There was a quote from Yamiche Alcindor, who I think was appearing on Andrew, Andrea Mitchell's show. We're way down the rabbit hole of names within names within names. But um, she said the, that the the two things that really stand out about the foundation of the, of the Trump presidency is there, are Kellyanne Conway saying there could be alternate facts and Rudy Giuliani saying truth isn't the truth. So that O'Brien pointed out that both were said to Chuck Todd on Meet the Press. And in both cases, Chuck Todd laughed. Uh, he wasn't appalled or angry or he didn't stop the interview (laughs) he left and uh listen there is there is a place for washington insideriness right there was definitely a time where you when you and i would watch these shows on sunday morning flipping back and forth between this and 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 everything else, and 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 you would get you would you would understand begin to understand something about Washington by the way that people interacted. You know that things weren't as dire maybe as they seemed, or things weren't serious in the same way that you understand you understood. But um, that's not necessary for the what would present itself as the most important news show on television. That's not that shouldn't be a part of it, frankly, anymore. And I think that if you find yourself listen, people, this isn't a condemnation of the way someone reacts in a real time to a just off the wall moment. But if that doesn't kind of spur change in the way that you do business, uh, you got to ask yourself what the point is.
0: I just think that's his affect in a way, because if you noticed, he was really smiling during that Kevin Kramer interview. He wasn't doing Tucker Carlson frown face. Yeah. Which is all of cable news. You know, now mm-hmm. when you're interviewing the Trump person, you do you do frown face. I just think that's his I just think that's his manner. It's really.
1: true. It's true. And And maybe we're going to do do more of these segments talking about other shows and we're going to keep coming around to kind of a central question, which is when you when someone refuses to answer a question, it's really easy to say on Twitter, they should just ask it until they say until the person answers it. Right. It's easy to to, it's easy in, in the hypothetical to say they're doing that wrong. And it's a fact that they're doing that wrong if they're not getting the answer. I don't know what the solution is, though. I don't know. Uh, short of just being like, I'm just going to sit here until you answer the question, and then, and then abiding five minutes of dead air. Yeah, uh, or
0: pulling or pulling the plug, like we've seen some of these anchors do. Okay, I'm tired of this. I'm out of here. You know, I'm not going to let you be on my air
1: anymore. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, it's a, it it is it is a hard question, not just sort of spiritually, <laughs> but but morally, but also like you know from a production standpoint. So you know, it, it, they need. They need to figure that out, but that's easy for me to say.
0: David, we had one of our favorite TV people on today, Ben Mankiewicz from Turner Classic Movies. He is the guy who does the intro when the African Queen comes on or when Casablanca comes on. He was also kind enough to put together a list of his favorite media movies, his favorite journalism movie. (laughs) And... I will just say I will just set this up because one of them, he wrote an abbreviation of the movie down on a piece of paper and could not remember it (laughs) during this podcast. I'm going to let PressBox listeners listen closely and see if you can figure out which famous media movie he was trying to refer to. Here's Ben Mankiewicz. Uh, ben Mankiewicz doesn't have all the coolest jobs in media. He just has two or three of them. You know him from his intros and outros on Turner Classic Movies. He is Our Man in Hollywood on CBS Sunday Morning. And he also does political commentary. He's here to talk about all this along with some of his favorite media movies. Thanks for coming on the Press Box, Ben.
4: Oh, uh, Brian, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's an honor.
0: I don't want to sound like the Taco Bell commercial voice, but <laughs> in these challenging times pandemic, fate of democracy at stake, do you find yourself retreating even more into old movies? Uh, definitely. Um,
4: and and more so, and first of all, it's always an issue for people with, uh, I think, certainly for me, um, when you have all these choices that we get overwhelmed by the fact that we can go through Netflix and see 500 movies and Amazon Prime and, and what's available on the TCM app or whatever people have recorded on their uh, DVRs. And, you know, we're like, oh, my God, I want to see this. I want to see this. But it's over when you're like, ah, I'm just going to watch Shawshank Redemption or I'm just going to watch Casablanca. Right. <laughs> um, and so uh, I think there is more of that because, you know, uh, uh, being comforted uh, means uh, more than ever now. So, yeah, I am. I certainly think more about my job, too, at TCM, which I know provides some legit comfort to people. Right, I mean, you know, I get it. We don't make these movies, but we bring them to you, and we've sort of taken over the stewardship of these uh, films. And it matters to people, uh, and I, I, to everybody who watches and cares about these movies, because the people who care about them deeply care about them. But I know we got a lot of uh, we got a lot of viewers alone. So uh, you know, I get it. We're not on the front lines. We're not scientists. We're not developing a vaccine. We're not doctors, nurses, everybody else who works in the hospital, respiratory technicians. Um, or, you know, delivery drivers, all these people who are doing, you know, grocery store workers, all these people who are doing such great work. But, but I do feel like what we do matters.
0: Besides the escapism of old movies, what is it about them, do you think, that makes them reassuring in this moment? I think that
4: always, and particularly now, because we need extra comfort, you know, there is a nostalgia has been sort of co-opted uh, by commerce, Right, you think, oh, nostalgia. I'm going to get a a, a, an authentic, um, you know, that isn't authentic. You know, uh, Oakland A's jersey from 1973, or you know, Um, but nostalgia is real. It's a real. I don't know if it itself is emotion, but it triggers emotion. Nostalgia connects you to your history and your parents' history and your family's history and the history of your friends and the people who matter to you. So, you know, uh, uh, watching movies that you watched growing up with your folks or wished you watched growing up with your folks so that your parents watched, your grandparents watched, um, or that, you know, look, these aren't, uh, documentaries, but you watch Casablanca, which I watched again, Wednesday night for no reason, not even thinking I might watch something, you know, um, Uh, you know, I turned it on hoping there was suddenly Wednesday night football, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, and you end up uh, watching uh, Casablanca and it gives you an idea of, you know, how people dressed, how people talked, you know, they all didn't lead these thrilling lives and they all didn't dress this well, but you look around, you know, especially noir and you see, you know, this is, man, this is what life looked like. This is the hats that men wore, you know, everybody wore a suit like all the time, (laughs) you know, um. Uh, and, and I think that I think that matters I think they can teach us something but more more than anything I think they connect us to the people we cared about um and obviously that's valuable and that's not a
0: pennant does Casablanca play differently in 2020 with La Marseillaise? We're all pulling together we're in crisis we can we can you know pull together and sing together to get through this sort of Profoundly strange moment?
4: You know, look, I think it plays as well whenever you see it. It's impossible to watch stuff now and not think about what it means. I mean, I I take more meaning. I I never watched The Good Place because it's on network TV. Um, But I knew people loved it. And I started watching it on Netflix with my wife over the past month. And I take meaning from that now, right? About sort of what it means to be good, right? Um, So... Definitely. uh, There is something more to everything, especially things that are good. Um, And, but I don't want to pretend like that scene, that look, it's the best nod in the history of art. Right. When uh, uh, Paul Henry says, play Le Marcier and they won't do it because they, they, they do what their boss says and not because their boss is a hard taskmaster, but because they respect the hell out of him and they look over. And in that moment, Bogart joins the fight, right? It's like in that moment, he's like, all right, I'm going to help these people and I'm going to help Victor. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. And I might pretend a little longer that I'm not going to do it. And he gives that nod and they play it. And, you know, and then when Madeleine LeBeau, you know, who was flirting with the uh, German uh, officer before, when she starts singing it, I mean, if you don't cry, you're not paying attention. Um, And then, you know, the gambling scene where he keeps the... Uh, Joey Page from uh, having to sleep with Claude Rains, which is really an awful scene. Like, I mean, we love Claude Rains. You're like, oh, he's bribing a 19-year-old woman to sleep with him uh, in order to uh, uh, give her exit papers to leave the country. Wow. (laughs) Right? Um, So, but that scene where he, you know, he tells Marcel Dalio, yeah, no, 22, leave it there. Uh, You know, uh, cash it out and never come back. And she tries to kiss him, and he's like, "Just go." And then Esesha calls, like, "Oh, they they get it, they get
0: it." And it's it's beautiful, and that scene always uh, makes me cry too. This is way more elemental, but just watching movies over these last several months too, it's amazing to on a screen watch two people or three people or four people stand next to each other and have a conversation. Totally right. I think about it all the time.
4: I, I keep reading on Twitter, people I follow, funny people I follow who say they get anxious when they don't see it happening. Like, especially stuff that looks modern, right? I think it's easier in Casablanca to know that it's the past, it's black and white, they dress differently, they talk differently. But you watch, you know, if you're watching CSI or Law & Order, again, two shows I don't watch because they're on network TV, (laughs) Um, but you're watching anything. I'm watching The Good Place, right? You just, you'd think, what are they doing? God, (laughs) Get the memo. Come on, man. Wear a mask. Get some distance. Uh, yeah, I think that's all happening. What are you watching when you when you say you're going through movies? What have you watched?
0: Well, I was watching Singles with my wife the other night. I'm not really sure why. Cameron Crowe movie. Pure, I guess it's pretty, escapism, it's romance, right? Yeah, it's good. And but watching like people having a date in a coffee shop, you're like, oh, right. That, that happened in 1992. In, in the coffee shop,
4: right? Not sitting yeah. outside at a table eight feet from each other. That's right. No. Yeah.
0: You started Turner Classic Movies in 2003. Did I read this right? By last year, you had appeared on the network more than 20,000 times. That seems
4: high, but it's possible. I mean, you know, you're doing, uh, I mean, it's thousands. I have no idea. I have no idea. That seems high. That seems like a number that Robert Osborne would have hit but I think he's in the thirty thousands, So I, I might've hit 20. I mean, it's been 17 years. He had nine years where he was doing four movies a night, seven days a week. You know, there was no other host until I got there in 2003. And even then I was just doing weekend days. They, they wouldn't let me call myself even a weekend host. It was like, no, no, weekend daytime.
0: host. <laughs> I was like, come on, man.
4: You know, yeah, I just, it was like, um, I used you know, I, I have memories of Monday night baseball. And, you know, we're like, you know, he's hitting 377 against right handed pitchers at night who've been in the league more than five years. Mm-hmm. And you're like, all right, sure. Okay. I'm not sure that matters. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, but then eventually they caved to weekend host and then host. They came around. It only took me
0: about eight years. I read an executive say one time when you started, you had a goatee and they put you in something that looked a little more like a loft and you were, you were kind of the snarky, Alternative to Osborne, a little bit—is that how you were cast? Yeah, I would say that's right. I
4: mean, I, you know, I—I was—I hate that adjective, but I get what people mean, and I—I, I, um, you know, I, I'd rather have amusing. <laughs> You know, um, I'd even, you know, uh, I'd even rather have sarcastic snarky just seems like a guy you want to punch in the face, but I get it. That's not certainly not what they meant. Although there were people who wanted to punch me in the face. Yeah, we had two cameras, so I would walk a lot. I mean, Robert did too, but then, you know, you'd have to pick up the second camera and we do everything in one take. So, you know, cause there are no, there's no way to edit. We have no moments of, you know, we don't put pictures up. We don't use photos. Very rarely we're doing doing it at the end of November for Sean Connery. Just worked doing a night of, of four of his films, and I introduced three of them, and I wanted to make them long intros because I don't think Connery gets the respect he deserves, not that he's disrespected, but he's an important actor in the history of cinema, so I wanted to, and so I was like, hey, can we jazz these up a little bit and give me a break when I'm shooting them that so I don't have to run two minutes and 45 seconds without, without screwing up. Um, so yeah, I had the goatee. That, it was in my contract, man like (laughs) really i swear nobody believes this uh in the first line of the contract before length of contract or money uh, artist shall keep and maintain a goatee failure to keep and maintain a goatee shall be considered a breach of contract by (laughs) artist you know and then my agent was like well what if he gets something else and he has to shave it can we get a prosthetic goatee like there was those conversations actually
0: uh took place wow it's almost yeah. like they were imagining like the movie guy out of a Kevin Smith movie. You know? Totally. That's right. This is yeah, the guy we want. Um, yeah.
4: I mean, in the clothes, I mean, I had all these layers, a t-shirt underneath and then a shirt and then a, a wonderful guy, Tom Karsh was our general manager there. And he, he liked that look. And now those clothes, I've lost a tiny bit of weight since then, but, but they're gigantic. I mean, I'm swimming in them the way, you know, guys wore double-breasted suits in the fifties. And you're like, what are you doing, man? You're that's four sizes too big. Um, but it was, I mean, I'm just, I'm making fun of them because I love them. I mean, they lifted me out of, you know, 16 months of not getting paid really. And, uh, you know, and gave me, I auditioned for 175 jobs out here
0: and got one, and it was the best one I auditioned for. When you do an intro, are you speaking to film buffs or are you speaking to people who've never seen the movie before? Both, but mostly people who haven't seen it or are seeing it again and just
4: love it, right? And not, uh, not first of all, I'm not a film scholar, right? I'm a broadcaster who loves movies and now knows a lot about them. But uh, I don't want to lose people. Look, man, we're on television. I want to be entertaining, Right. But I want to teach them something about the movie. But really, that's teaching. There's endless. I mean, I've just, in the last four or five years, I've really expanded what I think is the concept of of an intro. Um, and so I, uh, um, I, I just, there's more, I talk less about the movie and the story of the movie. That's always a balance, like how much of the plot to give away. I now just try and say, you know, uh, he's a detective and, and this, I use the phrase enters the picture. Cause I think it's clever. And that's where, and somebody enters the picture and then to suggest, and then you got it right. He's a detective. She comes to him for help. You know, somebody's missing. And then you talk about the actor, you talk about the actress, you talk about the director and you put it in this historical context. Movie was made, you know, uh, a fair amount of stuff during the uh, communist witch hunts. And then I rip those. It's one of the, one one sort of political thing that they have given me free reign to <laughs> wildly criticize. Witch hunts are fair game. You may, Witch we, we, hunts are, right, when you when you get uh, people to destroy the lives of their friends and colleagues in order to save their career with the movie industry working in conjunction with the government. Yeah, yeah, we can call that a dark time in American history.
0: Yeah, no one is pro-witch hunt at this moment in, in well, American you'd, history. you'd be surprised at some of
4: that. <laughs> um, uh, I saw Ann Coulter, uh, uh, whose name we don't hear a lot uh, anymore. Uh, she, uh, years ago, was defending the... Uh, purge of uh, communists from the fake, it wasn't a fake purge, but the purge of mostly of almost exclusively fake communists from the U S from, you know, any position of, of, of influence. It's a take. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Sure. It's a take. Okay. That's right. Yeah.
0: You've talked about uh, TCM fans. You said I'm addicted to game of Thrones, but nobody thinks I'll stand with HBO until the bitter end. There's nothing like the relationship Turner classic movies has with its fans. How would you describe that relationship? Well, since uh, HBO Max is now part of
4: our company and WarnerMedia, so uh, I'm going to change that to, uh, you know, I might love billions on Showtime. I (laughs) I mean, I might love Succession. But uh, no, but I mean, it's true. Uh, And and even though uh, those are brands that have really successfully, you know, I mean, uh, having nothing to do with the company. I mean, HBO is the leading brand for quality television. Still, I don't think anybody has come close to touching it some of the shows might be as good elsewhere, right? But AMC, you're not in inst- you don't think, oh my God, those incredible dramas. Better call. Saul. I mean, I love Better Call Saul, you know. But uh so, but even then, people don't say, oh man, I'll watch anything on HBO, right? And HBO is part of my life, right? Sh- showtime is part of my life. Sure. Epics. Epics is part of my life. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um the uh um you know, it's right. Uh, I do anything for stars, action. There you um, go. But uh, uh, but the uh, but TCM matters to people as part of their identity. Frequently, you know, um, they wear it like a badge of of honor. We we did, um, and then they they watch they watch us and they watch us like, hey, we're watching the movies, and since you've taken stewardship of this, don't f it up, right? And mm-hmm. if you do, we will let you know. Uh, and I like that. I mean, that, that I think that's that's pretty cool. I really can't think uh, of another non-news entity that comes close to that. And even those, uh, but that's a whole different that's a whole different situation. But yeah, for a for a television channel to be a fa- part of the fabric of people's lives, I think is uh, is is really something. They are rabid, but thoughtful.
0: You know, in the before times, when someone would come up to you on the street, what they want to talk about
4: in the oh yeah um you know movies so yeah and and somebody will, will uh, come up to me and and and, the, and because they know more about this movie than i do cuz it's their passion and i just wrote about the awful truth yesterday uh for an intro and and they'll say you know i don't understand why did irene Dunn uh behave this way and and i can't remember the name of the actor who played her fill in the blank and i'll be like yeah i can't I can't really help you right now. Like I've seen it two or three times. And, but whenever I talk about it, whenever I talk about it, I, I read about it first and it refreshes my memory, but that's pretty rare. Uh, and and even then it's incredibly warm and kind. And there's an openness to it. I, I think most people, I'll see people sometimes look and and I know that they uh, recognize me. I mean, I'm a, it's funny. I mean, I'm like an E-level uh, known person, except to the people who care about TCM, in which case they're like, I don't know, I don't know, George Clooney, whatever, you know, they're there for Robert Osborne was even bigger. Oh my God, there's Robert Osborne. He's standing next to, I don't know, what's his name? Jennifer Aniston's ex-husband, you know, they don't care. Uh, So that's (laughs) neat. I mean, you walk into a place, there's a 99% chance no one knows me, but man, that 1%, (laughs) they think it's a big deal.
0: Yeah, they're serious. I was in Miami earlier this year and I went down to Key Largo where they have the African Queen. The actual boat from yeah, the boot, right. or what we think is the boat, and I'm out on the boat with this very excitable skipper, and I'm I'm not kidding. As soon as we get in the water, he's like, "What was Catherine Hepburn's character's full name?" and "What <laughs> what was Charlie Allnut's nationality?" and and I'm like, "You, I I don't know it to that level, but I start right. to get defensive, and I'm like, he was Canadian, you <laughs> know." I'm yelling over the the noise of the motor, but it had a real Star Trek convention quality to it, which you don't think of with movies like that, but. There are people who take it that serious. There, oh, no question. And, and we're, we're, I'm incredibly grateful
4: to them. But I, I don't, I mean, I, I now know a lot. I mean, I know a ton and I love knowing what I know. But, you know, I, I used to go to a pub quiz. I'd give it every six weeks and write. It was fun to write with a friend of mine, Michael Shores, a political reporter. And then uh, we'd go the other weeks and, you know, there'd be some movie question and they would like, oh, Ben, you'll know that. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't know a trivia like that about movies. I'm limited to name, you know, uh, uh, the, the guy who played second base most during the eighties for the Astros. And I'm like, Oh, Bill Doran, you know, like I can do, <laughs> I can do that. Um, uh, cause that's what I had as a kid, you know, and that, that stays with me, but I, I, I can't help you on most, uh, most trivia. We just did the African queen also, by the way, which of course we do all the time, part of a night coming up of, I think it's Christmas night. Like we do Christmas movies for that whole week, and then we change on Christmas itself. Like we counter program a little bit, and we, our night is too many Hepperns, and we go Audrey, Catherine, Audrey,
0: Catherine. All right, I'm going to call the boat captain and have him watch your intro with. <laughs> to make sure you don't miss anything. Your uh, grandfather was Herman Mankiewicz, newspaper yeah. man who gets into movies and writes a screenplay for Citizen Kane. He died before you were born, but now he's being played by Gary Oldman in Mank. Movie's about to come out on Netflix. It's already been out in theaters. What did you learn about your granddad from watching Mank? Um, I mean, it nicely.
4: Well, I mean, there are all kinds of little things I learned, but I'm not even sure what was true. I then did a piece for CBS Sunday Morning with David Fincher. You know, and I don't. You know, I, I used to think that biopics. I still think that 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 things based on a true story matter if the story, if people knowing the truth about the story matters. You know, I, I they c- clearly captured the essence of everything that I've come to understand through my father, even through my mother, who who who, in the few years that she knew my grandfather, um, you know, got along with him really well and had a a sense of who he was. Um, so uh, you know, it's really nice to to you know, I I guess I sort of picture Gary Oldman. I I I didn't really get, which is clearly true how big a deal he was in Hollywood in the early 30s. I mean, seen as the premier wit, storyteller, screenwriter, which he could have been for years and years if he weren't incredibly self-destructive. And I like that they captured his rampant alcoholism
2: Mm -hmm. and
4: over-drinking and binge-drinking because – what had always been relayed to me is like by my father, he's like, no, that was a loss. Cause I, I, he'd come home and he'd be too drunk to talk to me. Right. But he was never mean ever. He was never a cruel drunk, except to people who, you know, if you got drunk and made fun of Harry Cohn or Louis B. Mayer, or mm. William Randolph Hirsch. like well no, those guys it's okay um, <laughs> but he was always kind like there's a scene early in the movie where he comes home drunk and a woman is helping him into what appears to be an apartment and I'm like no man i the thing about him was he didn't fool around on my grandmother right and then of course it turns out who's helping him get into bed is my grandmother like he's you know that's who and i was like oh okay good never mind <laughs> um but Gary Oldman's amazing i mean just this you know, we already knew how great he is, but he is really good. He really captures the essence. So Amanda Seyfried as, as Marion Davies, also just amazing. Lily Collins as uh, uh, Reed Alexander, my uh, grandfather's uh, secretary when he was writing, assistant. Uh, you know, these people just deliver incredible
0: performance. It's a great movie. You mentioned your dad, Frank Mankiewicz. He ran George McGovern's presidential campaign in 1972, which for media freaks is also the boys on the bus campaign. You were only five, but do you have any images of that campaign? Not really. Um, I uh, I knew my dad was doing it. I
4: knew it was important. I remember being in the back of my best friend's car. They had a station wagon sitting in the back, and his mom, my best friend's guy named Dan Hamilton, he's the dean of the UNLV law school, and uh, he, uh, his mom, and Hamilton, was driving, and so a bunch of kids in the back, and I remember saying, and it still makes me wince. In order to, I don't know, get at my dad. I'm for Nixon. Oh, right. Right. And just this, that little moment stands out for a, you know, five-year-old, but I don't really remember that. Um, And, uh, you know, it's a little like getting on the bills for losing four straight Super Bowls. Like, you know, we focused too much on winning. I mean, he got blown out, lost by, I think, 23 points. Uh, Didn't even win his home state, but, um, you know, getting there was amazing that they won that Uh, Nomination, and I think Nixon was going to get reelected against any any candidate in nineteen seventy two. He ran it, by the way, with Gary Hart.
0: Right, right. that. Yeah, you do a lot of political commentary. Do TCM fans of a different persuasion, shall we say, ever get on you for something you said about politics
4: on Twitter? Sure, but I mean, I don't. You know, I'm 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 pretty careful not to criticize supporters if I'm criticizing politicians or pundits. I never do it on the air. There's no place for it on TCM with the exception of the blacklist, you know? Um, and when it calls for a, a, a movie biography of, uh, of Ronald Reagan, you know, I mean, I praise him and then, you know, we'll mention that he, you know, lifted the country out of a great malaise. If that's, Relevant, but mostly I used the same joke almost every time, you know, say he became, he was an actor and he was president of the screen, actors skill, and then he gave up acting oddly and no
0: one really knows what happened, to him. <laughs> you know, um, it's not the greatest joke, but I enjoy it. Yeah, but, uh, it works. It yeah. works. So you were nice enough um, when we asked you before you came on to put together a list of some of your favorite media movies. And I'm always struck watching Turner Classic Movies, how many media movies are there are. Maybe there are people like your granddad who drifted from journalism into movies. And that's the reason why I, when I'm on there, I not only see, you know, Deadline USA, but I also see Libelled Lady and all these things. And, you know, do we have a theory why there are so many media movies throughout yeah, well, the ages?
4: I, I think that sort of it lent itself to conflict. There was a a, a really strong respect for uh journalists for a long time in this country that I don't know whether you know this, uh it doesn't exist anymore. Oh. No. <laughs> and yeah, you don't say I think it's been eroded somewhat. Um and these guys were smart and they were cynical and they were clearly uh willing to to trade for uh information and frequently they were uh in the bag for certain politicians or certain titans of industry. Um and all that is interesting and compelling. It allowed the little guy, these guys never got paid, there were no rich newspapermen, uh, and they took on criminal syndicates and they took on a big business that was either exploiting their workers or exploiting their customers or exploiting people. So it just lent itself to that. And they were smart and they were funny. Um, and yeah, and, and many of them came out and had been writers. My, the only topics of conversation for my dad growing up in, in, in Beverly Hills, uh, in the house with uh, his father, Herman, I mean, they just, they talk politics, they talked journalism. My, my grandfather was ashamed of what he did, ashamed of how much money, uh, he made. He didn't think it was serious. Being a theater critic, being a journalist, writing plays, that would have been okay. But this, you know, this pop entertainment designed as a way to sucker in Americans who didn't
0: know any better. I mean, he was wrong, but that's how mm-hmm. he felt. Yeah, at the time. So, what's on your list, favorite media movies? Well, you, you, the first one on this list that
4: I made uh, is Deadline USA. I mean, it's great. You know, uh, Bogart has uh, two. I mean, he has a lot of great movies. But you, we were talking about African Queen, and the, other than Casablanca, my two favorite bogey movies are uh, are uh, Deadline USA In A Lonely Place. And I think his boxing one is the harder they fall. They're two that's that are right. so similar, but I love those movies. I think that's his last movie, "The Harder They Fall." Um, and uh, so, but Deadline USA is great, and that is journalism standing up and getting at the truth. Right? I mean, these movies had a had a, a production code that required the bad guy to get his. So you know, this was journalist. This was always the little guy. Uh, you know, sometimes fighting his publisher who was also in the bag, right. You know, um, but then doing the right thing, uh, you know, in that last line, what's that last line at the end of, uh, uh, of, uh, of deadline USA, when he holds the phone up and you can hear the press running, you can hear the papers, you know, you know what that is. That's the sound of, and now I can't remember what he said, no. <laughs> um, but it's great. You know, that's the sound of the press, you know, no one can stop it, you know absolutely um so i love that um in uh, spotlight was great i felt like spotlight was a natural successor to probably the best journalism movie ever all the president's men which also makes me cry um uh and then uh you know ace in the hole is uh, sure. my favorite just about i mean I had a lot of billy wilder movies i love but that's kirk douglas you know, exploiting a situation for his own gain, right? And hyping something and in the process, you know, risking someone's life. Uh, uh That's just a great, 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 incredibly cynical film, uh, which I love. Um, Facing the Crowd certainly counts as a journalism movie and sure. you know, Kazan and Bud Schulberg seeing the future so clearly in 1957. it's It's stunning. I mean, in many ways, it's really not relevant about him now, but when I saw it for the first time at TCM. I'd probably only seen it once before I got to TCM, but you know, I felt like, oh man, that's that's Glenn Beck. Like that <laughs> is exactly him. Um Yeah, that's that's one person it is anyway.
0: But yes, anyway, yeah. So no, obviously
4: you can apply it to 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 a lot of people and you can, you know, we had Byron York on as a guest from the National Review, I guess, you know, sort of leading thoughtful uh conservative. And he was a lovely guy. He picked face in the crowd and he thought it suited his view of, uh, of, of where we've gone in this country of sort of elevating people, foolish people into demigod status. So, um, I thought that was incredibly interesting that we would take such different, uh, um, we would have such different takes on it. Um, and, uh, you know, C- Citizen Four. Uh, but then there's a, a film called, uh, that I had to l- I look up the title, but uh, a Kate Beckinsale movie directed by Rod Lurie called Nothing But the Truth. Uh, that's pretty great. Uh, Ooh. Um, I, I mean, I just love journalism movies, man. It, I, I, and I love backstage Hollywood movies. I mean, I love movies about making movies. And then, of course, I think you have to count uh, Citizen Kane. as. A, and then I abbreviated a movie N.W. And uh, it's probably mm. pretty good. <laughs> but I, I, I don't, not sure i've I caught nw n- newsweek um mm-hmm. uh, news of the world it might not be it might be aw it might be avw it might be A-A, yeah it's hard to say but anyway that one's great um <laughs> we'll, we'll uh, ponder that one yeah totally i'm going need a uh, listener to, to chime in with probably what i meant by that
0: you mentioned Citizen Kane, and that's that's kind of the funny second part of this, right? Is what what is a media movie? You know, it happened one night, right? Clark, Clark Gable plays a reporter. Is that a media movie? I if it is, it's probably on the list, right? Yeah, it's definitely a media movie, right? I mean, so many movies where the lead
4: character happens to be a reporter count as a you know uh, count as a uh, as a media movie, but they're not movies about journalism. Right. That's sort of what I focus on, be movies about journalism as opposed to, you know, uh, exactly, you know, uh, uh, what you say there Um, or, you know, uh, or, you know, Roman Holiday, where it's not really terribly relevant that the that Gregory
0: Peck is a a journalist. Yeah. The um, when you mentioned Deadline USA, two things stand out. One is there can be no better portrayal of a crackling newsroom in right. Deadline USA, or at least what we imagine newsrooms used to look like and sound like at that period. I think they got it. I mean, that's you know, my dad. That's how my dad said it was.
4: You know, there was this constant action and this feeling. You know, there's that great. I think it's an HBO documentary. I hope so. Let's just assume it is because it's good. Um, that uh, <laughs> you know, Pete Hamill, Jimmy Breslin, documentary, right? And then you just see that it's okay to have sort of crusading opinionated reporters. If their heart is in the right place, they might be wrong, right? They might pick the wrong side from time to time, but they care. They had something valuable to say. They were smart and they cared about what they did. And then afterwards, yeah, like you see in so many of these pictures, they, you know, they went to a bar and they drank and they yelled at each other and they, you know, loved being with each other. Um, and, uh, and and mostly they were smart and funny and smart and funny has a place in journalism, it doesn't really have a place in journalism now on television, which feels regularly less and less like journalism and and more and more like entertainment. In fact, that's just where it is
0: now. Absolutely. The bar scenes and deadline are quite good. And I also love the way in that movie, Bogey says the name of the mobster, Ransy, Ransy. Yeah, he's so great, man. Ransy. I could listen to that all day. All right, catch Ben Mankiewicz on Turner Classic Movies as you try to assuage your feelings of anxiety during these trying times. Also check out his podcast with Peter Bogdanovich, The Plot Thickens. And his appearances on CBS Sunday morning. Thanks so much for coming on the Press Box, Ben.
4: I, I'm sorry that I'm unable to come up with NW. I'm literally scrolling through. <laughs> this isn't what it is. But by the way, as I see it, Charlie Wilson's War, one of the great, great, great films. And
0: oh, there you go. All right. So if anybody film. knows NW or possibly <laughs> AVW, please come to Ben's rescue and and let us know what it is. Thanks, Thanks Brian. Bye. All right. The answer to that, which most of you probably know, was Network. Network was what he meant to say. And Ben Mankiewicz and I have both been uh, suspended for six weeks for not remembering the name network. All right. It's time for David Shoemaker guesses. The strain pun headline. Hooray. Thursday's headline about Trump's failing legal strategy was the lawyers of diminishing returns. <laughs> Today's headline comes from Mike Shaw is staying six feet away. It's from a Guardian newsletter. The story is that the United States David is planning to demolish the giant Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico. This is that giant telescope that was in the James Bond movie GoldenEye. Yeah. Your keyword here is dish. Dish. What was the Guardian's strain pun headline?
1: Oh man, um, it's a good one. Gotta warn you. Oh, okay, wait. Give me a second. Dish. Um, dish Network. Dish. Uh, uh, daily dish uh end of the, the <laughs> not an andrew the, sullivan pun yeah the day the, the dish um oh my gosh the end of the dish
0: what would what would we say if so we were, long and
1: thanks for all the dish Ooh, the
0: pretty good what would we say if we were destroying something Particularly uh, a building raising right. something
1: uh farewell uh what uh what's the uh, verb here uh the building explode, was demolish
2: Demolished
1: d- d- uh, dis- uh, Cut down Bulldozed uh, Cut ri- down completely Uh Ooh, what?
0: sorry We're out of time And what was it Dish leveled <laughs> Dish leveled
1: Oh my god that's both terrible and wonderful That's why we do this
0: He is David Shoemaker on am Brian Curtis Research by Chris Almeida Production magic by Erica Cervantes In the Press Box newsroom, we don't do holidays. So we'll be back Thursday with an Ignore Your Family edition of the show. We'll be answering a big old bag of listener mail. And we'll talk to Josh Dean, who has an amazing new crime podcast called Chameleon, Hollywood Con Queen. And we promise to deliver our best lukewarm takes about the media as always. See you then, David.
1: See you later, Brian.